Goodbye, the university. Well, Happy New Year, everyone, and welcome, Lisa. This is our first GBU call of the year. So glad that it's you. Yeah, well done, huh? Well, yeah, we were we were scheduled to end the series right before the end of the year, but life got in the way. So here we are wrapping it up with what pro- might very well be what I suspect the most popular topic for everyone in a relationship. I know I was a big fan of contracts, but I suspect that today's topic is going to get a lot of replay. It it's an interesting topic. I mean. I want. I was going to say hard, and it's not because that's not true. But I think that how to keep the passion alive in a relationship that goes on for longer than you know six weeks. <laughs> it's it's kind of the topic of the day for any two people who are engaged in relationships. Well, and I know most. Okay, the limiting belief. I was going to say most people don't really believe that it's possible to maintain that same level of passion and excitement that you have when, when you first meet someone that you're interested in. Uh, so I think that this is going to be really good to hear just to help reset some of those preconceived beliefs and open up to new possibilities. Well, and, and I would say that maybe that's where we start. And this is going to sound counterproductive to what this call is about. I don't think you can necessarily keep it the same. I mean, I, I don't believe that that is entirely true, that it can be the same, that it can stay the same. Some people, people might will, actually hear some relief in that, that, you know, they're, that they aren't failing if they aren't experiencing that. Right, because it can't. I mean, in the beginning of the relationship, lots of things are going on, but you can't, you can't replicate some of those same experiences. And we will talk about that a lot more because I talk a lot about replicating the beginning of a relationship. But you can't replicate the getting to know somebody. You can't replicate the newness. You can't replicate the excitement and the learning and the, you know, all of the passion and intrigue that comes along with being in relationship with a stranger, literally. I mean, that you can't recreate. But what you can replace that with is a depth and, like, a depth of knowingness and a familiarity and a certainty that is extremely, extremely powerful for creating intimacy. And, I mean, those kinds of things, the certainty, the depth, the the sort of literally depth and width of experience that you have together, in, in a thousand ways, that's better for passion than newness. I mean, that's what I was thinking, yeah. For, yeah, when you know how to do it, right? When you know how to do it right, when you know the person inside and out, where there's safety, where there's, again, certainty, like being able to open yourself up in a way that is completely vulnerable and raw because there's, there is safety and caring and, you know, a, a depth of experience, a depth of history. And some people would think that, you know, that's not necessarily good for passion because it's all about the newness. But if we can reframe, not trying to get the newness back, but taking those pieces of our relationship that have allowed it to continue for a period of time and using those things to fuel passion, I think there's 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 great hope. All right. Well, that's, that's good to hear. Before we dive into it, I'd like to hear, to confirm with you, um, I suspect this is something that a lot of people 
experience in relationships, and maybe you're not the one to ask because you're a relationship coach, so obviously you probably talk with people who are experiencing problems more often than happiness. I don't even know if that's true. Here I am questioning everything that comes out of my mouth. But it, I, but Lisa, is this pretty typical for a couple to experience waning passion over the years? I'm watching myself on what I, I believe is necessarily <laughs> true. I, and what I was going to say, so I'm just going to say this, and I can I, I will preface it by saying we can question everything. But generally, I believe that if it's not accounted for, if it's not planned for, if it's not a part of your purpose as a couple, you know, maintaining passion and keeping that spark, that it is inevitable that it will it, it will wane or deteriorate or break down altogether. And I don't think that everybody sets out and says, you know, most people set out and say we're going to have a successful relationship or we're going to buy a house or we're going to have kids or we're going to stay together forever. But making passion the priority, I, I believe that that is rare. And I think it almost has to be important enough that it becomes the priority and then everything else sort of filters and disseminates from there. Oh, I, I, that sure makes sense to me. I'm imagining some people might experience, too, that waning passion, for some it's a problem and for others it's not. It's just an expectation that they accept as an evolution of their relationship. But, but I think that is true. But I still see, I think the expectation is part. Like almost everybody expects that that's going to happen because we're socially programmed to believe that. But I do think that for almost everybody, male, female, you know, every, everybody, it becomes a problem on different levels. Like for, and this is generally stereotyping and this does not hold true universally, but we can just say, you know, for men, it might be about sex. And for women, it becomes about romance. And I see it very often being a mix of both, you know, a, some sort of combination of all of that. But I don't think, I, I think it's very rare when you're dealing with a couple who is experiencing this where it isn't a problem on some level. Even though they expected it, on some level, both partners feel like something's missing. i got to say, I... I I'm laughing at myself. I'm think I'm flashing back to years past when I said something to my husband that he did not appreciate. Oh, I said, I said, uh, "Hey, buddy, you're up." <laughs> and he said to me, "That's not very romantic." And he slept on the couch. And I remember thinking, "Since when does a guy need romance?" <laughs> but. But in the recent coachings I've done with you, I've learned from my about my sweetheart that romance is part of what they're interested in, which I did not understand that about men. I thought that was strictly a woman's gig. So, I, I think that a lot of times our perceptions about what men want are formed very early on. And let's say that 19, 20, 21-year-old men want sex for sex's sake. <laughs> Maybe not so all, but like, most. Hey, buddy, you're up would work. <laughs> Right, exactly. You know, your 20-year-old boyfriend would be like, sweet. <laughs> but, I mean, as men mature, their their wants and needs and expectations around romance and sex and connection also mature. And what that is for them is maybe different. And because it's different, 
we as women sometimes don't recognize it. Like we miss the cues. We miss we miss the need. We miss we miss the cues that say romance because men do romance differently. But sex and romance equals connection to women. And sex and romance also equals connection to men. And with the woman that they love, with their partner, they want that connection. And that is still about sex and romance on a lot of levels for them. I I hear it equally from men and women, which I think is maybe somewhat surprising, but men will say the same thing. I don't feel connected to her. I don't feel like she thinks I'm important. I don't feel like, you know, we're having that connection. I don't feel like we have enough romance or spark. I, I hear those things from men equally. It's just the communication patterns about how that gets tossed out in relationships are very different, so they tend to not connect. All right, so women shouldn't necessarily feel like they're on their own in wanting to create this in their relationship. No. Got it. No, and a lot of that is experimentation and dialogue, but I do think that there has to be a dialogue that says what feels like romance to you. Because women, and I say this all the time, women will try and do romance the way they experience romance, and then they'll feel like it's not working. You know, I'm... I sent him flowers at work. (laughs) I didn't get any response from that. He's not sent me flowers. Or I made a romantic dinner, and, you know, he didn't really seem to respond to that. And those things are because we're trying to do things that would feel like romantic gestures to us. Sometimes you just have to ask the question, like, what feels romantic to you? And be willing to hear what that sounds like, which is quite likely to be different but equally important for the man. Do you guys know what romance is? is what, do they, can they answer that question when they get asked it? I've never met a guy who couldn't. Wow. Well, that's very cool. I mean, I suppose there are guys who can't. I mean, I think there are women who can't answer that question. I mean, if they had to define romance for themselves outside of what the vision that they've been given by romantic comedies. Agreed, Lisa. I might be one of those women. It can be it can be a soul searching question because there's like a stereotypical media driven version of romance, but I don't think that that's what it is for everybody. I mean, it's certainly not what it is for most men. And real, I mean, if women get real, they may not actually want those same things either. You know, I texted Russ the other day with just a simple "I love you" message, and he told me later how much that meant to him. And I remember thinking. I was like, yeah, why did I send that? I remember, oh, yeah, I came downstairs and noticed the dishwasher was unloaded. <laughs> I thought that was so sweet. <laughs> Romantic. Clean my house. <laughs> well, and I think a lot of women will say that, like what's romantic to a woman, you know, somebody who does the dishes. That That's not, you know, that's not romantic comedy material. Right. But, you know, somebody who does the dishes. David will say the same thing. If I say what feels like romance to you, he will say, just touch base with me during the day. Send me a text message or maybe leave me a note. Like, that feels really, really romantic to me. That does not involve what feels romantic to me, which is I really want to go out to dinner on the water and sit outside and, you know, watch the sun go down. Those things are fine for him, but he doesn't necessarily cue off that as a romantic gesture. He cues off that as we're having salmon for dinner by the water. <laughs> I gotcha. Yeah. We, yeah, Russ and I did a walk like that on the beach where I'm thinking, woohoo, prime time romantic opportunity. And 
and he, that's not what he was thinking at all. He was just, oh, let's just get this walk done because she wants to. We'll get it out of the way. So I get that there can be a, a pretty big discord between a couple as to what they consider romance. And obviously, this is a big part of fueling the ongoing passion. Well, and I think that men like to really much, very, 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 very much. They like to succeed at romance because, I mean, they're sort of wired that way to want to be like these sexual beings, the men, the conqueror, that thing that we talk about a lot. And one of those things is being successful at romance. And part of being, part of allowing a man to be to be successful at romance is making no assumptions about language. Like, if you want to go for a walk on the beach and that's romantic, if you want flowers and that feels romantic, if you want, you know, dinner by the water and that feels romantic, you have to be willing to ask for that and not just assume that he should know. You know, he should know. Everybody knows that flowers are romantic. Everybody knows that. Why should I have to tell you that? If I tell you that, it doesn't mean anything. But they just... They don't think about things the same way. So, I mean, we've really got to be willing to say what it is we want and need and then give them the room and space to to be, to be successful with that. It's a different language. Like, I, a couple of examples I can give, one having nothing to do with romance, but David texted me a couple of days ago and said, I'm on my way home. Um, do you want me to bring anything? And I said, well, we've got some, I don't know, what was it? What is this stuff that's in my fridge? I'm going to look. Mm-hmm. We've got some sort of dip in the fridge. We had hummus in the fridge. I was like, we've got hummus in the fridge, so why don't you bring home some chips? Okay. So David comes home from the store with sour cream and onion potato chips. Uh-oh. <laughs> this is not something you eat with hummus. <laughs> and he knew that. But he heard me say two different things. Why, you know, we've got hummus in the fridge. Why don't you bring home some chips? He didn't connect those dots. Got it. Because men don't necessarily do that. There's, and I wish I could remember who this woman was because I use this story a lot, so I should give her credit. Um, but there was a woman who told the story about how yard sales almost ruined her relationship. Because when she was courting this man, you know, pre-wedding, she would, one of the things that they did together, which she thought was extremely romantic, was he would come over on Sunday afternoon and load up in the car, because that's what she asked him to do, to take her yard sailing. This does not sound like my idea of a good time. But to her, she loved to go to yard sales. And, you know, they'd have a drive, and they'd be together, and they'd go to yard sales. And after they got married, that stopped. And so she really felt like that was a romance disconnect because that was a big thing to her. So somebody said to her, you know, you need to you need to talk to him about this. So she did this in various stages. Like at first, they would be driving around, and she would say, oh, yard sale, did you see that sign? Do you want to stop? And he was like, no. And would just drive on. So in her mind, she's thinking, what an asshole. <laughs> because in her mind, she's speaking really clearly. Oh, look, yard sale, do you want to stop? He's like, no. And finally, she broke it down to, and this took her about a year. Like, she was fully pickling in this issue around the yard sales, that he wasn't 
wanting to do this romantic thing for her anymore. And finally, she managed to say, I really like to go to yard sales. I really like that time we spend together. Would you take me yard sailing on Sunday? He was like, oh, sure. Got it. The request instead of the, well, I mean, I guess there's a directness that made all the difference. And and we consider it directness, but to a man, it's not even overtly direct. It's just a, a clear line of communication which is say what you want, maybe even not say what you want, but ask for what you want, and then give him the room to accommodate. You know, that happened to me when I had the flu last week, Lisa. I, I'm i stuck in bed. I mean, I'm not even coming downstairs, and nothing else is happening in the house. I'm not doing anything, and I'm kind of thinking, Russ should know, do some things. you got to feed some dogs. you got to water some cats. you got to scoop some litter boxes. He's not doing anything. So I finally told him, you got to feed these cats this, and you got to put that water there, and da da da. Feed these birds this out back and out front. So I laid it out for him, and then he did it. So he did the bare minimum, but he didn't do like he he wasn't walking the dogs. And so here I was kind of irritated. I had to tell him what he should be doing, and then the dogs weren't getting walked at all, and they're kind of starting to go stir crazy because they're not getting walked. So finally, after like three days, I said, I guess it was day four. I said either. You or me or my ex-boyfriend dog walker is going to have to take these dogs for a walk today. And and that wasn't probably a very nice way to say it because it sounded a little bit like a threat, like if you don't walk them, I'm calling Burl. And because, I mean, it was pretty clear it wasn't going to be me that was walking them. And so, he, and, and so he walked them. And then he walked them the next day too, but he didn't. it didn't even cross his mind. And here I was stewing about it that, hello, Take care of some business. Walk these dogs. But it it just didn't even occur to him. There's a a big difference to a man. And it's not, we think it's nitpicky. And it it, it becomes a pattern of learning to communicate differently. Like, we have to be really conscious about this. But that's a really good example. Like, stating the obvious, the dogs need to be walked, that stating the obvious doesn't mean anything to a man. Would you please walk the dogs? (laughs) That's the deal. Um, Those are the words. Someone in the chat room was asking to expand on when you said before men do not connect the dots and wanted us to expand. But it feels like that we just did with that. Like the dogs need to be walked does not translate into my boyfriend's mind as please will you walk these dogs for health. No, women, and I talk about this a lot. I mean, some people may have already heard this, but women pride themselves on their intuitive nature. And women, by nature, have a very intuitive communication style. Very, very intuitive communication style. We we speak in implication naturally. A lot of implied communication, a lot of intuitive communication, a lot of reading between the lines and filling in the blanks. And because of the way our brains are wired, we do that naturally. So we don't even necessarily, although we pride ourselves on it, we don't necessarily see it as an exceptional talent or ability or a superpower. Mm-hmm. But it is a superpower. I mean, there's a reason men think the way they do. Biologically, I mean, it goes back a thousand years to survival, whatever. We can talk about that all day long. But they don't they don't have that same ability literally to 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 go between the dots or read between the lines or fill in the blanks. They their brains just don't function that way. So we interpret the way they're communicating or not or responding to our communication or not 
as rude or dismissive or, you know, any number of other things, lazy, ridiculous, sucks up. But in a lot of ways, we're speaking a foreign language because all of that communication that is unspoken, the distance between the dogs need to be walked and will you please walk the dogs, that's like an unspoken language that we hear naturally. That's gibberish nothing to a man. Yeah, I, it was amazing to me how the dogs were crawling the walls and he doesn't even, he didn't make the connection. Um, another good question from chat room, Lisa, how to balance being specific without being bossy? Please. Say that again? Please. Oh. <laughs> and again, I mean, for a woman, like we're concerned about being bossy. We're concerned about the nuances of language. We're concerned about a lot of things. Men are pretty cut and dry. So, I mean, you can't nag. If you And I, I say this a lot, too. If you're asking for something over and over again and you're feeling yourself nagged because we know what that is when we're nagging and it's not working, then go around it. Figure it out. Hire somebody to do it. Let it stack up. Whatever. Don't nag because nagging in itself creates a whole different problem, which we can touch on if you want to. But men respond very shockingly amazingly well to the magic word. Gotcha. Will you please X, Y, and Z? And if our communication patterns have been screwy for a while, they may not respond to that immediately. There might be some retraining that needs to happen. But eventually, that's what it needs to come down to, like maybe more than once, like I would say three times being the maximum. They need to be trained that we're not going to nag to get done what we need done. I mean, your response was, if if you don't do this, I'm going to get somebody else to do it. <laughs> you know, in that situation, maybe it was a little sketchy, but that's that's yeah. probably a pattern of communication that works with a man. And so the way you do it is ask nicely, maybe two or three times. And in an extreme circumstance, you might put it in writing, like leave a little note. Hey, I noticed, blah, blah, blah. Could you please? That's about mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. And like so the, the difference is the word please. I mean, as simplistic as that sounds, that's, that's about where it lands. Um, Mexico City wants us to say more about nagging, and guest six asks, what if they forget? <laughs> okay, nagging. Men will literally, this sounds like I'm harsh on men. I'm not. I'm, it's quite the opposite. But when a woman starts nagging, a man will develop the incredible ability not to hear her voice. Like, literally, and I've said this before, too, like, nagging is the leading cause of deafness in men. They just start tuning that out. Like, the tone of voice. Could we define nagging? Because I'm wondering whether I do it or not. I think nagging, and I think nagging is really individual. I mean, David David and I had this conversation about nagging a few weeks ago. He's like, you don't nag. I'm like, oh, bullshit, because I nag you all the time about your working hours. He's like, oh, yeah, you're right. Oh, I, I know when I nag. I, when, I say, when I say to him, have you called your mom back? I, right. I, yeah. We know when we're nagging. You're right. I got it. Because yeah, we I, know yeah. how nagging feels. We know that nagging is like... The feeling behind that is frustration. It's a sick sense of urgency. It's agitation. When we're speaking and asking and making a request and the driving energy behind it is agitated, 
we're frustrated. We're we judging. Know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We know when we're doing it. And men learn to just tune it out. They don't hear it anymore. Much like my little one, my three-year-old or my four-year-old, started calling me Lisa a while back. What? <laughs> and I had to think about it. Like, why is he calling me Lisa now? And it's because he was mommying me to death. Like, he mommy this, mommy that, mommy, 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 mommy. And I got to where I was not responding to that. I wasn't hearing him anymore because he was mommying the crap out of me. Oh, but he but understood that other die. people, yeah, other people call me Lisa and I respond. Wow, that is cool. So it's pretty similar with men. Like, much like I was tuning out the being mommy to death, men start tuning out the voice of nagging. And what happens ultimately is then they just quit hearing your voice altogether. So when you're nagging, they don't hear you. When you're saying this needs to happen because this is important, they don't hear it. When you're saying I really love you, will you buy me flowers, they don't hear that. Gotcha. I mean, nagging breaks communication between two people in a way that turns out to be very significant. We've got, uh, I think we've got maybe just one sole guy in our chat room who is, I think, very brave. Someone said, um, he's here spying for the male species. He's going to report back. And he says, yeah, I'm taking notes for our next meeting. (laughs) I had to laugh about that. Okay, so I'm wondering about how, you know, with deliberate creation, that a lot of it isn't so much what to do as much as what to stop doing. I wonder if that might also be true with this subject about keeping the passion alive, or is it a much more active force that's required to fuel it ongoing? I think it's active, but not in a bad way. I think I'm making it very, very simplistic. I mean, and again, you can't replicate the energy of newness. But there is a way of being in a relationship that is new, where passion and romance are really hot and viable. And I think that there are three pieces of that that are very, very noteworthy. And we've touched on a couple of them already. But there are three kind of foundations to passion that need, all three need to be in place for for, for any kind of passion to survive. And all right, so I'm taking notes. The first one is, And I'm just going to go through all three of these quickly, and then we can go back and discuss them separately. Okay. But the first one is you have to continue to date. Like, in a lot of ways, marriage is a relationship killer because marriage signifies the end of the dating phase of your relationship. And passion cannot survive in the daily muck of a marriage if some ritual of couplehood, like dating, does not exist. So that's number one. Number two is, and people argue with me, and that's fine, we can have this talk, that there has to be some form of physical intimacy that sustains. So, you know, you've you got to keep having sex in some form, of, some form or fashion. Physical intimacy has to continue to exist. And I would say... We've talked about this some, but non-sexual physical intimacy has to continue to exist also. Mm -hmm. Because that, again, defines you as a couple. Like, you don't make out with your roommate. Gotcha. Okay. Usually. I gotcha. (laughs) Unless you've got a cool roommate, but... (laughs) I was just going to say my son might disagree, but, you know, generally (laughs) speaking, 
you don't make out with your roommate. You you know, that's what that's kind of the defining line of couplehood. And thirdly, and I talk about this in my book, The Passion Plan, but politeness and common courtesy has to stay in play. Because two people who have lived with each other or been in relationships for a long time, very, very often, if there's not an, an, a very intentional commitment, they lose really critical aspects of common courtesy with one another. And then, I mean, it's like we have a way of treating our parents that is not particularly courteous a lot of times. And so you kind of start replicating that extremely comfortable, sort of almost taking advantage of or taking for granted kind of attitude in a relationship like children will do with parents because you know they're going to be there forever. I don't have to be nice to my mom. You know, I had a client who who, who said this. He said it, it was amazing to him how the ones that we love the most we treated the worst because we just – we assumed that they were going to be there or, or took them for granted or something, but even though he, pract- he was aware of it, he practiced it himself and, and wasn't proud of it. That, but I think you're right. Common courtesy, it, it does go out pretty quickly. I, in fact, Lisa, every single time, I remember how you said David thanks you for every meal that you make, even though you've been making meals for him for a long time now. Mm-hmm. Um, I think of that every single time I tell Russ, <laughs> thanks for breakfast, thanks for dinner, thanks for right. anything. I think of you guys. Well, and in the beginning of a relationship, obviously, we do that. Mm -hmm. I mean, but it goes away very, very quickly. And it's kind of the hallmark. I agree with your client, and I think that that is extraordinarily common, where the people that we love the most, that we know are going to be there for us, that's kind of where we change to break down in our behavior. I probably have said this on calls before. I mean, my grandmother's famous way of saying it was, don't dump your trash in the house you live. Hmm. You know, if you if you got to snap at somebody, certainly don't let it be the person that you have to go to bed with. This is sounding like a pretty easy formula to me. I, I think it's an extraordinarily easy formula. Common politeness and courtesy, maybe even making an effort to be more courteous to the people you love, to this person to maintain a sexual, physical connection and to continue to have some form of dating ritual that defines you as a couple at not just as roommates or parents or household partners. Well, I'm seeing how... I'm seeing actually ways I can practice this even outside of romantic relationships, that common courtesy thing. I've had people at GVU who've private messaged me asking, you know, how come you don't ever comment on my posts anymore? Because I'm pretty good at, you know, when someone new, you know, it's their first time posting in the forum, I am all over those. But the people who've been there a while, my most valuable members of my circle I I don't necessarily treat as well as the brand spanking new ones. It seems it, it's a, it's kind of an inevitable result of taking for granted. I had a conversation actually with somebody today who was talking about just that. Like we tend to put our energy on the ninety five percent of what's hard and not focus on the five percent of what's super. <laughs> when the five percent of what's super pays the greatest dividend. Let me ask you this question from chat room. How do you vent or admit frustration then without going overboard, without unloading too much on your spouse? 
Are we talking about frustration about your spouse? Ooh, good question. Does it does it matter? Yeah, it really does. There's there's a there's a okay. big line in Sanda. So if I were just heated about something that happened in my day, um, you've actually addressed this before on prior calls, I believe. Well, if you're um, heated about what happened in your day and you're talking to a man. Men want to feel helpful, so that's easy. This is what happened in my day. What do you think? Or this is what happened in my day. I just need to talk about this. Please don't try and fix it. You know, that's easy. I, I was actually talking to a couple, and I talk about this in one of my videos in the series. It's like I was talking to a couple the other day who was dealing with this very issue about how do I talk to him or her about him or her. And my general rule of thumb for that is the 15-minute on Tuesday rule. Say more. And it could be, you know, Wednesday or whatever. It can't be more than 15 minutes. But you basically say, okay, we're, we've got some stuff on the table that's going on between us. And when that's happening, most of the time we're irritated with each other about lots of little things because we're not dealing with these things because maybe they're too hard to talk about or whatever. So for the next two months, Every Tuesday at 7.30 p.m., we are going to talk to each other for 15 minutes about this this thing. So, you know, maybe we're having a lot of issues and we're fighting about money. And those money fights bleed into our relationship in all kinds of different ways. We're going to corral all of that into one sacred space, 15 minutes on Tuesday. And for 15 minutes, we're going to hear each other out on Tuesday on these issues but that's it. I mean, this is the this is the fence around those things, which means I'm not going to be bitching about you to you about this on Wednesday because it's 15 minutes on Tuesday. But during this period of time, we're going to hear each other out for real. I think that's a brilliant plan, and obviously, when you you practice yourself with success, right? <laughs> we practice it. I would say. You know, we used to, in the beginning of our relationship, we used to do it weekly while we were kind of trying to figure out how to live with each other. Now we practice this particular strategy if something's up. And it's really easy. Like, if something's going on that's not working, it does bleed out. Like, you're bickering with each other about stupid stuff that's not pertinent because the the frustration level is there. So now if we've got a specific issue... We will do exactly that for the next X number of weeks, 15 minutes on Tuesday. Hmm. And the rest like of our relationship is going to be a sacred space where we're not talking about this. Our I'm, our guy in chat room confirms that men often think you tell us things because you want us to fix them. That's what we do. We fix things. It reminds me of how I'll be just venting to Russ about something and he'll be like, he'll have a perplexed look and say, what do you want me to do about it? <laughs> like, that's why I'm telling him. I'm like, I just wanted to tell someone. <laughs> well, and I think that that's the key. I mean, again, back to the communication, like saying exactly what you need. I, if women would just say that, please let me tell you about this and I don't want you to fix it. I just need you to hear me. That's the equivalent of telling him what to do to help. I mean, okay, so can we, can we ask, yeah, no kidding. Yeah, talk about setting them up for easy. Tell them how to help. Just listen. That's all, sweetie. 
Um, from the, I like this question from chat room. From the other perspective, when you've got a husband who is complaining too much about things, like th in this example it was about his job, and she's getting burned out hearing him go on and on about it, but she, but she says, but I don't know how to tell him that about the 15-minute rule. I think you you just have to, once again, communicate very clearly and specifically. And I think that women have a tendency to, they talk perfectly to each other. Like you and I talk about coach talk, like how people, how coaches will use coach speak, but then clients don't understand it. Women understand each other perfectly. We can use 5,000 words to say something men will say in, you know, 10. <laughs> and so you flat out say to your honey, you know what? This thing with your work, I can see how this is really important to you, but it feels really heavy to me. And so I would like to be able to give you all of my attention on this subject for 15 minutes on Tuesday. And then I need us to be able to concentrate on our life for the rest of the minute. Well, that would not just be good for the relationship, but good for him too, right, to learn how to put some boundaries around those negative vibrations that he's flowing. Yeah, and it may take some practice. Like, honestly, if you've got, and I will go back to money, because money is a hot topic in relationships, but if you've been fighting a lot about money, like learning to contain that to 15 minutes on Tuesday, that's going to take some practice. It may take some practice with your honey to say, oh, we're talking about this, and it's Friday afternoon, and I'm really interested in what you have to say, but we have an agreement that I'm going to give you all of my attention on this subject on Tuesday. Can't wait to play with that. So are there and other – oh, go ahead. I would say it's not a hard, fast rule. I mean, maybe it's 15 minutes on Tuesday and Thursday. But at least you're containerizing the conflict or containerizing a hot topic so that it doesn't bleed out in your relationship. I think for some people a good starting point might be just 15 minutes every day. <laughs> right. Well, and that is something David and I have had to do with work-related stuff. And we've had to – it's all fluid. I mean, you kind of have to roll with this stuff as it's rolling in your life. But we have had to do that with David's work, where David would come home at the end of the day, and, you know, 9 o'clock at night, we're still talking about it. Mm. And it's like, baby, we got to back this off. So when you get home, what I'd like to do – it takes 15 minutes for you to decompress, and then let's take 15 minutes to be together, and then let's start our evening together. Because I need you to be at work when you're at work and at home when you're at home. That sounds really, really, really crazy simple and effective. I love it. And it's not a lot of words. It's not like, oh, you know, I feel like this is creating a lot of drama in our life and I get overwhelmed with it and I don't know what to do when I feel this way and I don't know how to help you and it just makes me tired because I feel really frustrated by it and I don't know how to make this work any differently and this has been going on for so long and I just, to a woman, that's perfect. To a man, at some point you're Charlie Brown's teacher with all that talking. <laughs> okay, go Can on. I get a witness from the man in chat room? <laughs> Crack me up. Um, all right, so what else do we need to know about keeping the passion alive? I like your three-step formula that's so simple it feels like it's impossible to screw that up. Well, Is there anything else? 
I want to talk about the dating portion of that. Okay. Because I think particularly for couples, and it's not just couples with children, but I'm going to use that as an example because it's the biggie. Like couples with children will say, I can't, it's impossible. You know, we cannot, I can't go out on a date. I can't be dating this man. We've got three screaming kids in the house. They're driving me crazy. I'm exhausted. I don't have a babysitter. We don't have the money. We don't have blah, blah, blah. I mean, I have seen relationships fully turn around by setting two nights a week after the kids go to bed to put a blanket out on the living room floor with some candles and have some dessert. Okay, that's good to hear. You know, there... This is not necessary. It's great if it can be pretty much an exact replica of what turned you on in the beginning. Like we used to go hiking together all the time. We don't anymore. If you can go back to hiking, that's very likely to be a quick switch for passion. But if you can't, that's not an excuse not to do it. And again, if passion is the priority, that might mean you don't have cable, but you have date night. And your kids will benefit massively and tremendously by you continuing to have a passionate, healthy relationship. I think that's worth repeating to all the moms who are listening to this who tend to dismiss their own romantic life in favor of their children's lives to recognize that their satisfaction in this area does promote their children's health and happiness. It's critical to their children's health and happiness. Like children and there's nothing, I mean, I was a single mom for a long time, so I don't want to say kids need two parents to be happy and healthy because I don't believe that's true. But where there are two adults in a relationship in a family, nothing will benefit your children more than that relationship staying the priority, that passion and that love being the priority. And letting your children bask in the warm light of that love is the healthiest place they can possibly grow up. Right on. Anything Which else? Is a switch. I mean, yeah. it's a different way of looking at things. Not so much for men, but for women. Because as women, we drop everything to parent. Mm-hmm. Like you and I had, I had a homework assignment for something we were working on to write about how we started our practices. Yeah. And I have to almost, I mean, I was almost teary-eyed, but I hadn't finished it when I started really thinking about why I wanted to be a coach. And that when I had my first child, everything changed for me. And my drive and focus was about that child. Like, it changed the way I thought about everything and changed the way I did my life in ways that I don't think served me. I know didn't serve my marriage, and I know did not serve my son. Well, I think that's good for people to hear, coming from someone who's walked that path. So, yeah, dating has to happen. And I truly do believe that, and this goes whether you have kids or not kids, but I truly do believe you also have to remove yourselves from the house. Like, you you have to take a weekend. You have to take a vacation. You have to somehow, as a couple, remove yourself from your regular everyday environment for a period of time, overnight, over the weekend, so that what you've got is your coupleness, 
rather than all of this other distraction. I mean, dating is great, and the blanket on the living room with the candles is wonderful if that's what you can do, but you really do need to make the time to literally get away together. And that's not rocket science. We know that works. Like, everybody knows a weekend away works. Well, you know, that's... I couldn't agree more. And coming from me, that's pretty important because I'm not one who really enjoys getting away from home very often. And Russ has told me many times that's his favorite time, you know, getting me out of town, having just a short weekend together, even if all I'm doing is accompanying him on a golf tournament. It's He's he's made it very clear. And, and I feel it, too. It, it is a big difference. So I get that. And I'm a person who isn't a big fan of getting out of town. And it's not easy to do. Like, that requires a tremendous amount of effort. I won't downplay that. I mean, for me, I have a four-year-old. That's getting away for the weekend. My sister, who takes care of my son, doesn't even live in the same state. I mean, we're two and a half hours apart. But if we want a weekend alone, we got to get Kingston to Linda. You know, it's not something that is that is readily super easy for us to do. But I can tell, even between David and I, like, if, if – it's starting to get a little bit rough around the edges. I know that that is a cue that we need some time alone together, probably more than dinner and a movie. We probably need to be locked up in a hotel room someplace. <laughs> All right. Well, we might be getting to juicy parts. Um, can we talk about physical intimacy? How, how many times have I given the speech on why men need sex? <laughs> You want to give us a short version for someone who might be listening to this recording first before any of your other material? Women will have a tendency to want to feel connected before they have sex, which is what romance is about. It's about connection. So women want to feel connected. They want to feel close. They want to feel that level of intimacy before they have sex. That's the way we're wired, which surprises me because it's like nature backfired on this one because men are not wired that way. I mean, you would think if, you know, God and the universe wanted us to reproduce that God and the universe would have wired this up right. (laughs) Yeah, put us on the same page. (laughs) Right. But we're not. So women will have a tendency to literally hold back or hold out or use sex as a reward or a weapon when they're feeling like they're not getting that connection, that intimacy. Here's the here's the kicker on that. Men get a burst of that intimacy after sex. And we all know I like brain chemistry, but this is like hard science that says oxytocin, however you pronounce that, is the cuddle chemical. And is the women what have a lot of it. Oh, cuddle it's, chemical. Yeah, the cuddle chemical. Women have a surplus of it in their brains. I mean, they've literally tested this. A woman looks at a puppy, she spikes. A woman looks at a baby, she spikes. A woman's watching a romantic comedy, oxytocin spikes. You know, she looks at chocolate, she's probably having a spike. Women have a lot of oxytocin in their system, that cuddle chemical. So that feeling of bonding and intimacy is really easy for women to access. Men do not have a surplus of that. But the one time they get a surplus bump of that particular cuddle chemical, that intimacy bonding chemical, is immediately after sex, which is why they bond with their partners. That's how we become sort of mating pairs is because that's when men feel that connection, that bond, that intimacy. 
So what happens is women are holding back, waiting to feel the very thing that men feel right after the thing. Mm-hmm. And so as that intimate bond starts to break down, men need sex to get that. So we're talking about perpetuating passion here. A man needs physically, biologically, is going to be most susceptible to passion and sustained connection and intimacy as a product of a healthy sex life. And it works in reverse for women. So women have to be mindful of that. Both partners actually have to be mindful of that. Like men get tired too. It gets to be even for a man where it's like I'm too tired, I'm too run down, I'm too stressed, I've got too much going on. But keeping that intimate bond, some sort of sexual intimacy is required for that. Well, what you just described is what someone's mentioning in the chat room, that she's, uh, it's once in a blue moon when he's available for what she's interested in. So um, I I forgot what my question was going to be around that. Uh, Never mind. Well, and I think... You know, I, we tend to, again, generalize this like it's a man-woman thing. Men want sex, women don't. That doesn't hold water. In my practice, I don't see that hold water at all. But I, I think that men and women are capable of understanding the conversation. But we need this part of our lives, A, to define us as a couple, and B, to maintain a sexual, uh, to maintain an intimate bond. So we, both of us, for this reason, need to make this a priority. How does that happen? And the answer is not the same for every couple. The how, like there's no textbook version of how. But the answer between two people still has to be found. Got it. Got it. And this is something that obviously we want to engage our partner in the in the. Pr- in the conversation. This isn't right, something we want to try to figure out on our own. Yeah, I, I think there's something powerful about setting an intention. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna negate the power of that. But I really I mean we're in a we're in partnership, we're in relationship. This is something that needs to be discussed. I, I really feel like I think I said this on another call in this series. If we talked about sex as much as we talk about mm. money <laughs> it is likely not to be a problem in very many relationships. And in and, and this one, I think it's critically important that we come at it from the perspective of this is best for both of us and this is why. So how rather than, you know what, I'm not getting enough and I'm frustrated or you're not interested in me. You know, or why? A, along those lines, an astute comment in the chat room is, that she's trying not to nag for sex, knowing that that is not a sexy thing at all. It's not no. To the it's not. It's not a sexy thing. It's like back to the four-year-old. Like we're trying to teach him that good behavior gets him more of what he wants. And at four years old, he's capable of understanding that he wants what he wants. So, you know, he's not likely to get it by throwing a temper tantrum. He might be more likely to get it by cleaning his room. That's like that's the line of thought that works for a child. And much the same with a relationship. I mean, your partner may not want as much sex as you want, 
but you're in a relationship, so chances are both of you want that relationship to be healthy and safe and happy and thriving. So approaching the sex conversation from the standpoint of a thriving relationship is really different than approaching the sex conversation from the point of I'm not getting enough and I don't feel like this is working out. Gotcha. Sex is charged. I mean, it's a, it's a very, very difficult, it can be a very charged topic. So how we oh. come at that can't ever be personal. I think that's important, too. It can't be personal about the other person or it can't be personal about us. Like saying, you don't want me like you used to, you don't think I'm pretty, is still personalizing it, and that doesn't work. Um, i got to say, I feel a lot of relief around this topic of physical intimacy because a lot of what you hear people say about how to keep the love alive is get experimental, get something that to me sounds kind of crazy going on in the bedroom. And that I find pretty intimidating and not so very appealing. <laughs> so I really, I like that you haven't said I need to do that yet. <laughs> Maybe that's think- coming next. Well, I, I, that could come next. I I know there's a sex therapist named Roz Van Meter that I used to do some work with. Um, she had a way of saying that you need to add one thing to your toolbox annually. And that seems like really digestible to me. So I was, oh, okay, you know, now we're going to add a vibrator, or this year we might add a porn movie, or this year we might do whatever. I don't think... That I I think that and so this is going to be a bold statement. When we start trying to inject passion with shock value, mm-hmm. something else has gone wrong. And so ah. it's not that that doesn't work. I mean, you can bring in a threesome partner if that's the gig and that's what you're doing, and you're trying to stir something up. Surely that is going to stir something up. But passion is something other than shock value, and so to experiment, I think, is really healthy. I mean, I think that that is a part of a natural dialogue about what turns you on and what turns me on, which changes for people over time, which is why that dialogue needs to be ongoing, because what worked for your husband five years ago may not be the deal anymore, and vice versa. Experimenting is one thing, but it has to be backed up with a lot of love and a lot of dialogue. But injecting passion through shock rarely works. I got to I got to say there's a smart comment in chat room. I think you have to be turned on about life to be hot in to be hot in bed. Yeah, I mean, we I think that was one of our first calls. Like you've got to have passion for your own life. You you've got hey. to have something to bring to the table, the relationship, let alone the bedroom. Um Lisa, what's in that toolbox? <laughs> For the person who said, add one tool to your arsenal every year, uh, that, that's a whole different call, isn't it? Well, I mean, I will, I will just, it is a whole different call, and I would love to do this call someday, actually. But, you know, out of Roz's toolbox, it would be one tool in the toolbox is toys. One tool in the toolbox is role-playing. One tool in the toolbox might be pornography. One tool in the toolbox you know, might be some form, but other forms of erotica. One tool in the toolbox might be, um, you know, taking it a little further than some might be comfortable, um, multiple partners or submissive right. dominant, dominant, dominant play, those types of things. I heard enough. So, we can close the toolbox now. <laughs> yes. Yeah. 
But <laughs> He's the key, satisfied. All right. <laughs> the key to that, though, is at least being willing to look at what's out there and finding something that feels fun and not scary. Because if something is scary for one partner, it's not going to work in the bedroom. I gotcha. And there's a lot of latitude between, you know, point A and point point places we don't want to go. I I would I will back it way off and say I really do think that we need to be willing at to at least continually experimenting and dialoguing about our own body. And, you know, one tool in the toolbox could be touching me here or touching me there or doing it differently because those points of passion or those points of what turns you on, your erotic zone, do change. And I think that's another big part that should be leg number four on our foundation here is understanding that my body is different than it was five years ago and so is yours. So what we've taken for granted about what we know about each other, that that doesn't stay the same over time. Yeah. I had never heard that before until you told me that. I can't remember what call it was on, but that was super eye-opening for me. That is one of the easiest tools I've got for helping couples start to talk about sex is just by going to your partner and saying... I hear, they say, whoever they are, they say that erotic zones change over time. So I would like to propose that we dedicate the next few days, weeks, nights, whatever, to exploring each other's bodies to see what we're missing about what might have changed. That could be 15-minute Wednesday. (laughs) That could be, exactly, that could be 15-minute Wednesday. Oh, my gosh. Uh, I... I'm having so much fun with you, Lisa, and I cannot tell you how much chat room activity there has been on this call, including lots of thanks and appreciation for a I'm not saying that to wrap us up, but just to say this is very well received. Um, All right, what else do we want to cover? Well, are there any other questions? Um, There was, I'm looking at the most recent one. That says, uh, we get to choose our own toolbox, right? And I was yep. saying, you know what I've been doing? I think I've been losing one tool a year, not even just not adding new ones. I think I've been, but but I know where that comes from. That comes from being taken for granted, from not being treated like a date. And, you know, when he asks, how come you never whatever anymore? I know the answer because you don't do all the things that you used to do when things were new. So this this idea that, what makes the biggest difference here for keeping the passion alive is just do what you did in the beginning seems incredibly simple, but I get how effective. It, it, it's, I don't believe there is any way to sustain passion if you settle into a relationship and those aspects change and never come back. I just I don't think it's possible. Because okay. you knew what worked for you in the beginning. I mean, it was a certain level of romance and attentiveness, and that was there. It has to, it has to be there. Okay, so um, I, before I get to chat room, you had also said, too, that the smart move here is to, for both couples, both couples, both people to be making a very conscious commitment to the passion, being very deliberate about it, and not just letting it do whatever it's going to do, good or bad, but... But being very aware 
of a desire to maintain it and how to do so. Yes. Okay, from chat room, that you cannot control him, you can only control you. Thoughts on that? I'm choosing my words carefully. Give me a second. I, I, I always think you, you lead with intention, no matter what. You lead with intention, you follow with behavior. And when you're dealing with a situation where there's a third, or, you know, someone else involved, when you've led with intention and you've followed with behavior, the other person has to fall in line or not. And then you have to decide if that's something you can deal with. When you're actually doing relationship right, a lot of, most of the time, we talked about this, I think more times than not, our partners rise to the occasion and meet us where we are. But if our partners don't when we're doing things right, then you have to decide if that's, that is tolerable or not tolerable because I think the point is well made, that you are only responsible for yourself and you can't change someone else's behavior. So if, in fact, you are doing it all, you know, the way you, you're, you're leading a relationship, living in your life the way you want to be, and your partner isn't meeting you where you need them to be, that in itself is a defining statement and moment that, you know, you get to choose. Like, do I, do I be with this person or not? And, and it, it takes more than 10 minutes. Like, I will have people say to me, since our session last week, I've been doing X, Y, and Z, and this person is not doing, you know, A, B, C, and D. <laughs> it's like, okay, a week is not a good indicator here, but, you know, at some point you have to draw the line. Like, this is the person I'm with, and can I deal with that, yes or no? Well, you also said something else really important there, and that's that get some professional help. I mean, trying to do this on your own when we've already got our own handicaps and sabotage habits and past negative experiences that that can I, I what comes to mind is how I was playing with law of attraction for three years on my own before I hired a mentor coach finally who specialized in law of attraction and my life changed more in three months with her than it had in three years when I was trying to put this together on my on my own yeah. so I, I obviously cannot recommend your services enough in, if anyone's listening to this and feeling like, yeah, but you've got a problem that isn't easily remedied by any of the suggestions shared here, get Lisa on board or or some sort of professional support on board. I don't recommend anyone besides Lisa, but <laughs> no, that's very sweet, and 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 I love that, and I thank you for that. But and I would I would go back to some sort of professional help on board, and if you're thinking maybe, then the time is now because. It's much like with anything that's broken or sick. I mean, early intervention, you know, a, a three-month early intervention is way easier to fix than a relationship that's completely on the rocks. I mean, early intervention is incredibly affordable. And I mean that from all standpoints, energetically, financially, emotionally. It's incredibly ever so much more doable than trying to fix something that's completely dead or dying. Well said. And it's All worth right. it because we're talking about the foundation of your entire life, really, your home. Yeah, so worth making the investment in. Um, anything else? We, we're past the top of the hour, and I don't want to keep you any longer than... I think uh, I've covered it if there aren't any more questions. 
I think we will always have questions for you, Lisa, which is why I am thrilled that you continue to bring such fabulous original material to us at GVU. So thank you again. I, I do predict this will be the most downloaded call, of not just of the series, but probably of all the calls that you've done for us. So thank you. Thank you. Let's let's make sure we get on the phone and do so. I will, I, will, I will just tell you right now what you don't want to get me on is marriage and the, or divorce and the vortex because that one I can't do. Oh. <laughs> hey, before you hang up, will you tell everyone where to where to find you online? You can find me at lisamhayes.com. Yay! And mm. Hayes is H A Y E S. That is correct. All right, everyone. Thank you for listening. Thank you again, Lisa. Happy New Year, and we'll see you hopefully soon. I'm always sad to see a series wrap up with you, but I've got more in my vortex. (laughs) We will do it again. Big love, everybody. Happy New Year. Bye, everyone.